will please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. This is our scripture reading this morning. Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 19. And then our sermon passage this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 7. 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 to 7. Despite the events of the past week, this is not a topical sermon, though perhaps it might seem as though it is. This is the natural uh, landing spot for us as we progress through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're uh, well into uh, a year's worth of our time having been spent in this book. Uh, we still have a ways to go. But again, our scripture reading is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 to 7. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. It's your duty to give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now, if you will please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This ends the reading of God's most holy infallible, inerrant, inspired word, his word which is recorded, set down in scripture for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful to you for your word. We're thankful for the timeliness of it. 
Lord, it is not according to the plan of any man that we land on this passage today, but according to your perfect plan. And so we pray that you would teach us from it. We pray, dear Lord, that you, by your word, would engender in us, that you would cultivate within us a culture of life and a further understanding of humanity made in the image of God. We ask for your blessings upon the one who preaches and upon we who hear. Give us understanding. Give us knowledge. By your spirit, O Lord, convict us and grow us. May you be glorified, O Lord. And may we be built up as your word is now to be preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to admit something from the very outset, that I am a fan of violent action movies as as much as the next guy, probably more so, to be quite honest with you. I like it. If there happens to be a uh, Taken movie on, or one of the Equalizer movies, or any of the Jason Bourne movies, I'm all about it. I like action movies. I like violence. I like fist fights. I like gunfights. Give me a good Western any day where there's a shoot-em-up, and I will enjoy it. It's just the way I'm wired. And despite the message of mercy given by Gandalf to Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring, from which the sermon title is derived, the Lord of the Rings books and movies are quite violent. One entire day of our recent vacation was taken up by a movie marathon of all three extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies, and we were nearly moved to tears by the scenes of battle. Perhaps that's why I so readily saw a similarity between what happened with David and Saul in the cave at En Gedi and the mercy that Bilbo Baggins showed to Gollum in The Hobbit. And if you've read those books, for some of you, these names may sound very strange. But for some of you, perhaps most of you, you're familiar at least with the basic concepts and contours of the books and the movies. You'll remember that much later... After the events that took place in that cave when Bilbo did have mercy upon Gollum, much later his nephew Frodo, after the fact, after Bilbo had departed and gone on from, uh, from Bag End, Frodo criticized Bilbo to Gandalf, saying that it was a pity that Bilbo didn't stab that vile creature, meaning Gollum, when he had the chance. And you may remember that Gandalf replied, Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. But in response, Frodo reiterated that Gollum deserved death. And Gandalf replied, deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it. Now it is hard to dispute that King Saul was deserving of death as well, and David would have been celebrated by his men if he had killed Saul when he had the chance. But we too are deserving of death. And the proof of that is that someone died in our place in order to satisfy the wrath of God the Father for our sins. 
As we make our way through this passage today, brothers and sisters, I would ask you to consider this thought. God shows his love for us in that while we were his enemies and deserving of death, his son died in our place. Let me say that to you one more time. God shows his love for us in that while we were his enemies and deserving of death, his son died in our place. Divided the sermon into three sections. Nothing new there. The first section is peril in a privy. The second section, the dealers of death. And the third, the Lord of life. Once again, peril in a privy. That's the first point of the sermon. Dealers of death. The second and the Lord of life. The third. So let's look at the first point of the sermon. Peril in a privy. At the end of the previous section, really what is actually uh, the last verse of, sorry, the first verse of chapter 24 in the Hebrew, we saw that David and his men, after they had narrowly escaped Saul and his men in the wilderness of Maon, they left that area and they went east and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Now, some of you may know this. Some of you maybe have been there and you've seen it in person. I have not, but it's an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And the name means spring of the goat. And it's named this because it's high up in the cliffs near the Dead Sea. And only mountain goats or very resourceful people could reach it in that day. Now it's a major tourist attraction in Israel. Probably the biggest tourist attraction outside of Jerusalem itself. And the Philistines had made a raid against Israel, which is why Saul suspended his pursuit of David in chapter 23. But now that things have died down a bit with the Philistines, and after getting a report that David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Saul goes off in pursuit. And what does he do? Verse 2 says that he takes 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel. These are the choicest of his war fighters. And he went to seek David and his men in in front of the wild goats' rocks. Now, wild goats are ibex, which are kind of, they're mountain goats. They look almost more like pronghorns. They have long straight horns that go up from the tops of their heads rather than the curved ones like rams. They still live there today. They roam the rocky ledges of Engedi to take advantage of the fresh water from its springs. And Engedi, this oasis there, is one of only two freshwater springs on the western shore of the Dead Sea. There are other springs, but they've, uh, they, they have the salt of the Dead Sea that's leached into them. Saul, however, as he's looking around trying to find David, he found himself in need of taking advantage of one of the other features of Engedi, one of its caves. Verse 3 says, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. The sheepfold that was outside of the cave was an indication that the cave itself was quite large, big enough for a flock of sheep. And so Saul knew that he could find a private spot to uncover his feet, as a literal translation of the Hebrew euphemistically puts it. Little does Saul know that He, at this point, he now is no longer the hunter. He has become the prey. David and his comparatively smaller group of men, about 600 of them, are scattered around this, what must have been a quite large cave, and Saul has no idea of their presence. And having found a makeshift seat of ease, King Saul was in quite a vulnerable position though he was completely unaware of it at the time. This brings new meaning to locking your door to the bathroom. It's not only to keep your kids from barging in on you. It might just save your life. 
David easily could have interpreted the situation as God providentially giving Saul into his hands. He could have taken Saul's life in an instant. He easily would have been justified by doing it. His men would have celebrated him if he had gone and stabbed Saul through the back or even through the heart from the front. Saul was deserving of death by almost any standard. And so no one, at least on David's side, would have faulted him for killing the king. And doing so would have ushered David in as king of Israel, or so he could have convinced himself, although Saul's supporters might not have been quite so convinced. This takes us to the second point of the sermon, Dealers of Death. David's men at this point certainly were of this mind. In verse 4, they tell David, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, seem, as it shall seem good to you. Now by the sound of it, David's men are quoting some kind of oracle that was given to David. But nothing like this, nothing like these words has been recorded so far in 1 Samuel as it specifically has to do with Saul. David says something similar when he's on the fields of battle against Goliath. And he says that the Lord has given Goliath into his hand. But there's nothing recorded like this. Perhaps David's men know of such an oracle. But God did not see fit to record it in Scripture. And so there is, I think, a fair argument from silence to be made here. Most likely David's men are saying this based on their conviction that David is the rightful king of Israel, not to mention the fact that Saul has been trying to kill David for what seems like ages. They see this as the golden opportunity that they have been waiting for, and they want David to seize it. They know that if it has to happen, he's the one who has to do it. And right after this, apparently without a word, verse 4 says that David arose. Now what was going through his men's mind at this point? We don't know how close in proximity they were to Saul, but clearly they were far enough away that they could have this brief conversation in a way that Saul couldn't hear them. We don't know whether any of David's men went with him when he went to Saul. Probably not. It's not recorded, but there's no no evidence that they went with him. But verse 4 says that David arose and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, David's men probably thought that David was going to follow their recommendation and kill Saul to their way of thinking, who wouldn't take this opportunity if they were in David's place? If the roles were reversed, Saul, I think we can safely argue, would certainly have killed David. Saul had already tried many times. David was justified in taking Saul's life. And it seems like most people today would think that David should kill Saul. Perhaps some of you here this morning feel the same way. I think most, uh, if not all of us, accept the use of deadly force and self-defense. Most of us probably agree that the civil authorities have been given the power of the sword to maintain civic order. Most of us would agree that there are times when war is justified. But David seems to intuitively understand something that his son Solomon would later record in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. To be too eager to deal out death is the way of the wicked. Now that isn't intended, 
What I'm saying is not intended to cast aspersions on David's men, but they were men of war, and they saw life's problems through the lens of warfare. Some of you know, I used to work for an explosives company. I used to drive explosives trucks. We called them boom-boom trucks. The truckers would call them on the CBs. They'd see the placards on the side, and most of them would know, you give that truck a good deal of distance. Well, my brother-in-law used to have a... a, a, a <laughs> this could never go today. This was in the early 90s, mid-90s. He, he used to have what looked like a, a three or four sticks of dynamite on his mantle with wires coming out of them and a small digital uh, uh, clock on it that said there is no problem that is too great that high explosives can't solve it. That's what explosives guys think about the power that they have. High explosives will deal with it. You got a problem? We'll blow it up. I think there's a similar mentality among men of war. There's a problem. We can solve it with the sword. Taking Saul out now might save some lives later on. It made good strategic sense. But while Saul was certainly far from innocent, he posed no immediate threat to David in that cave. Saul's intentions for entering the cave were clear. They did not involve trying to kill David. Saul had been the aggressor the whole time, but if David attacked Saul, that mantle would shift over to him. And as we'll see in a few moments, David refused to kill Saul on the grounds that Saul continued to be the Lord's anointed. But I think that we can expand upon that by also remembering that before Saul was the anointed king of Israel, he was an image bearer. Saul, like every other human being who has lived or ever will, was made in the image and the likeness of God. Human life is so sacrosanct, in fact, that James chapter 3 says we aren't even to curse people because they're made in the image of God, much less to murder them. And that is exactly what it would have been if David had killed Saul in that instance. Unjustified homicide, premeditated murder. Now, if you have a robust, robust understanding of original sin, then you know that no one is righteous, not even one. Every human being is born a sinner. Every human being is conceived a sinner. But every human being is also made in the image of God. We live today in a culture of death. Maybe it's always been that way, but it seems that for the last 50 years, we have a culture have been quite comfortable and casual with the ways that we have dealt out death. We as a culture think nothing of the wholesale slaughter of the tiniest of God's image bearers. Convenience is king. And we can't let an insignificant thing like a baby get in the way of what we want to do. And so now, what is it, 70, 80 million babies have been murdered in this country over the past 50 years? Well, brothers and sisters, we too have to be careful. We who want to celebrate a culture of life, even those of us who try to hold fast to this culture of life, we are in danger of being infected with the thinking of the culture of death that surrounds us. It permeates our society. And it can invade our thinking as well. We must be wary of thinking of those on the opposite side of the political spectrum as our enemy. In some cases, they may well be. But in every case, they are human beings, those who bear the image of God, and they are to be treated as such. 
Dehumanization of an image bearer is the first goal of the culture of death. And notice that in our passage, David men, they refer to Saul not as the king, not as, as the Lord. They refer to him as the enemy. That's what they say in verse 4. But David does not. And that brings us to the third and final point of the sermon today. Regardless of how the men feel about it, it does not seem good to David to take Saul's life. They told him, do, seemingly quoting the Lord, do whatever seems good to you. David arose, he sneaked up to Saul, as we've already noted. He cut off a corner of Saul's robe, but he did not harm him. However, we read that David felt great remorse for that seemingly minor act of aggression. Verse 5 says, afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now we may be asking ourselves, I did, I read this passage for the first time in a while. Why in the world would David be so troubled over such a minor thing? He just, he just clipped a corner of Saul's robe. Why is this a problem? Well, one commentator points out that in, back earlier in 1 Samuel, in chapter 15, verses 27 to 28, Saul seized what was most likely Samuel's robe there. It doesn't explicitly state it, but it seems most likely that Saul seized Samuel's robe and he tore it. And Samuel then said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And this commentator writes that this tearing of Samuel's robe signified the forfeiture of the kingdom for Saul. Hence, David staked his claim to the kingdom that day in the cave when he removed a piece from Saul's robe. This was something that David did not have authority to do. Only God could hand David the kingdom. And so what was David doing? He was trying to emanatize his own eschaton. What in the world does that mean? He was attempting to usher in his coming into his own kingdom with himself on the throne in cutting off a piece of Saul's robe. He was taking matters into his own hands rather than waiting on the Lord in that moment. And so even his symbolic action had gone too far, this commentator writes, and his heart literally struck him. One commentator writes that his heart palpitated. He was convicted. What he did was sinful. David understood that the cutting of Saul's robe in that particular context was an attack against his person. And so David says to his men in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And verse 7 says that with those words, David persuaded his men that they should not attack Saul. And Saul arose and departed the cave unharmed, not even knowing that his life had been imperiled. I think that it's important at this point to remind ourselves that not only was Saul an image bearer, but he was also Yahweh's anointed. So even though David was Yahweh's anointed too, And the kingdom of Israel would eventually be torn from Saul as a piece of Samuel's robe was torn from it. David did not have the authority to instigate his ascension to the throne. Now I think we have to be careful. We've made some generalizations about this passage or taking some application from this passage. We have to be careful about making too many. 
using this passage as a prescription for those of us outside of ancient Israel. This passage encourages the cultivation of a high view of human life. I think we could take that. That's a, that's a good general application that we can take from this passage. But I do not believe, I think it's wrong for us to argue from this passage that it would have been immoral for a sniper, say, to kill Adolf Hitler in World War II if the opportunity had presented itself. Because ancient Israel is both the kingdom and the church of God, and so it was unique in history. There are certainly times where lethal forth is justified and authorized in Scripture. What does David do? When the young Amalekite comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 1 to report to him that he killed Saul. Immediately David commands his men to kill that man. He authorizes lethal force against that man. So certainly there are instances where lethal force is justified. Just as the 8th commandment, You shall not steal implies a right for individuals to own private, personal property. So the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, implies the right of an individual to prevent the murders of others, as well as the murder of himself. And scripture clearly gives the state, civil authorities, the power of the sword, which the church does not possess. But this passage does teach us that we ought not to be too eager to deal out death, even when it might be necessary. I'm I'm thankful, brothers and sisters, you know I was in the military, but I'm thankful that I never had to deal out death to another human being. I never was in combat while I was in the Marines. I had four months to go when 9-11 took place. Two weeks after I got out, the Marine Corps instituted stop loss. Nobody got out two weeks after I did, in January of 2002. Many of my Marine brothers went to war. And I think that the adage is true. Even when there are justified instances of taking another human being's life, it marks that person forever. It marks them for the rest of their lives. I don't know the circumstances. I don't think any of us do. I haven't been able to watch the footage of what took place in the Capitol building and the death of the woman. I don't know whether that shooting was justified or not. I've heard arguments that it was. I've heard arguments that it wasn't. I don't know. Maybe if I could bring myself to watch the shooting, I could come to some conclusion on my own. But what I do know is that whether that shooting was justified or not on the part of the police officer who took the woman's life, he will never forget it. He'll never forget it. And those people who took the life of the police officer, whatever the circumstances were, and some of the stories that have come out are quite gruesome. They will never, never forget it. Even if they're found to be not guilty somehow, they'll never forget it. I think deep down our culture understands this. Even those who aren't believers, they understand this. Tolkien He seems to be a devout Catholic. I'm not going to make any pronouncements about his faith, but it seems to be genuine. seems to be. He certainly had an understanding of what a culture of life is. I believe that it informed his writing. 
But even complete pagans, total unbelievers, they can have an understanding because they are made in the image of God and they have a knowledge of God that is implanted in them because they're image bearers. They know, we all know deep down, that murder is wrong. We know it. And we know that even justified homicide, even self-defense, taking the life of another person in self-defense, that even that is a grave matter and a serious matter. That is why Romans chapter 12, verse 18, teaches us that if at all possible, we are to live peaceably with everyone. That is why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are times when instant violence is called for, such as defending your home, yourself in, in, at home during a home invasion, such as being in warfare. But I can tell you that, that my Marine brothers who saw combat, who witnessed the deaths of other people, who, who caused the deaths of other people, they live with it today. They've told me. So there are times where death is necessary to be dealt out. But be thankful that not everyone who is deserving of death has it instantly and eagerly dealt out. Because we too were deserving of death. But God at just the right time sent his only begotten son not to deal out death, but to have dealt death have death dealt out to him so that we who deserved death would have everlasting life. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you that you are the Lord and giver of life. We thank you that not only did you cause us to be born, but that you have caused us, your children, to be born again. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to resist, to cast off any of our culture, of our society's culture of death that has found its way upon us, any mark of it, any smudge or smear. But we pray that you would help us to remind ourselves again and again that even that person that we find ourselves at complete and total odds with is made in your image. Even the most rank unbeliever who shakes his fist in defiance at you is made in your image. And therefore, we are not even to curse him. But please help us to cultivate a culture of life We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.